is The Unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Laura London is the host of an excellent podcast series titled Speaking of Jung. This remarkable site explores the life and work of Carl Gustav Jung, and it does this through in-depth discussions with certified Jungian analysts. I have been listening to her shows, and I have been impressed by the depth of the conversations. Now, I have always been intimidated by Jung's work. There is just so much out there. Uh, It's a massive amount of his own writing, and there is also an equally massive amount of other authors interpreting his ideas. So Laura's site and her interviews have been a way in for me, and a way for me to better understand Jung and his work. One thing that I have always been fascinated by is that in 1958, Carl Jung wrote a book about UFOs. It is titled, Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. It's actually not a true book. It's an essay that was part of his collected works, and it was eventually published as a standalone book. And I've always been intrigued by this little book. And because of this interview, I finally read it. And this book wasn't easy. It is very dense. And I have to say that I had a difficult time getting through the entirety of this book. It is layer upon layer of symbolism and his own very specific phraseology of the workings of the psyche. So for me, this book, wow, uh, it was was pretty tough to get the milkshake up the straw. When I initially asked Laura if she would want to be on the show, it was specifically to talk about Young's Flying Saucer book. Yet... My contacting her was tied into a weird avalanche of synchronicities, and this even included a UFO sighting. And so, I mean, synchronicities are, that's the stuff of Carl Jung. Now, during our correspondence before recording the interview, I learned that she has had a long-time interest in the UFO phenomenon, and it is her personal experiences and her thoughts that have ended up being the core of our time in this remarkable conversation. Laura's website is speakingofjung.com, and Jung is spelled J-U-N-G. That's speakingofjung.com, and that will be linked in the show notes. She is also active on Twitter and Facebook. At the end, after the formal interview, I will chime in and read a few quotes from Carl Jung's book. They're very interesting. Also at the end, I will talk about my absence from this microphone. I know some listeners have wondered why there were no shows for nearly three months. This conversation was recorded Wednesday, January 13th, 2021. Laura, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Mike, it means so much to me that you reached out to me after all these years. Thank you. Well, I didn't know you for all these years. I just, I heard about you through um, 
when you did the interview with Gordon White on Rune Soup. Okay. Uh, that was probably over a year ago now. And since then, I've been listening to your podcast on and off. And, um, and it's really been helpful for me. Hey, so let me just let the listeners know uh, we were supposed to start our interview an hour ago. We gabbed for an hour. And so we've already got an hour's worth of conversation under our belt. So if we sound a little like we're, we're talked out uh, <laughs> at the end of this right. interview, we might be talked out. So, But your work is talking with Jungian analysts. Right. And so what is the genesis um, with your relationship to the works and methodologies of Carl Jung? Well, this all started for me with the analyst I was seeing. I have always been interested in psychology. I was a psychology major in college, but it went, it started prior to that. I've just always been interested in psychology. So when I was an adult, I wanted to pursue, I think it started actually with a series of body work I had done called Heller work, where you're lying on a massage table and you're being manipulated. The fascia is being kind of restructured, not structured, but moved around. And, and there's a corresponding dialogue with the facilitator during that process where memories come up or emotions come up and you talk. And so I went through that whole series and then I even did the advanced series and I enjoyed going to this office once a week. I was living in Cleveland at the time and I wanted to continue. And so the practitioner, uh, she said, there is a woman in this office who is uh, training to, to become a Jungian analyst. And you could just pick right up where we left off with her and you can come in and, and talk to her once a week. So that's what I did. And she was in the training program to become a Jungian analyst. And I had heard of Jung. I didn't know much about him, um, but we didn't talk about Jung. And that's something that I hope we can get into later. Uh, the difference between reading Jung and studying Jung versus living Jung and applying Jung's concepts in your life. So I picked up uh, with her and saw her once a week for... 17 years. It actually, that sounds like a long time, but uh, I moved to Chicago during that time. And so actually, let me back up. I moved to Columbus and I would drive to Cleveland once a week to see her. And then I moved to Chicago and it went to phone. So we'd have phone sessions. This was before Skype. So I got the idea for the podcast because I was in analysis with her for so long that I eventually became interested in Jung and we started talking about Jung and I would take a lot of notes. And so we'd have this phone conversation once a week and I was actually learning about Jung. And when we stopped, after we stopped, I that's really when I started reading books written by Jungian analysts because Jung is very difficult to read. So I do read Jung, but in the beginning, it was very difficult for me. Um, I'm talking about the collected works, you know, the, the 20 volumes, it's really 18 volumes, uh, 19 and 20 are bibliographies and indexes. So uh, it, it's it's not easy reading. So I started to read the work of Jungian analysts because I was going to the Jung house in Columbus 
for lectures and workshops, and they would bring in these authors, uh, Jungian analysts who had written books, to talk about their books. And I would take all these notes, and eventually I realized that uh, because I love podcasts, is that I would love to share this information with other people that don't know that this is an alternative because Jungian analysis is not therapy. It's not pop psychology. It's quite different. It's very different. And I wanted my podcast to explain all of that, explain how it's different, explain what Jungian analysis is. What is a Jungian analyst? How do they differ from clinical psychologists or Jungian-oriented, even Jungian-oriented therapists? How are they different? So I started the podcast with, actually, Whitley Strieber was one of my role models for it because I'd been listening to Dreamland since the beginning. And what I noticed is that Whitley would focus on a book. Uh, the author of a book. And so I uh, would do the same thing. I would uh, contact analysts, and I knew a lot of them, who had written books uh, of interest to me and what I thought would be interesting to the listeners. And I wanted each episode to focus on one book. Well, it didn't really turn out that way because there was so much else to talk about. But it is basically what I do. And uh, I don't know. Did that answer your question? I kind of got lost. <laughs> uh, absolutely. That's that's perfect. And, you know, so I am not a student of Young. I've tried to read some of his stuff. You're correct. It is very dense. It's very challenging yes. reading. Yes. And uh, the book that I just spent the last few days trying to read, I felt like I, I really had to grit my teeth to make my way all the way through it, mm -hmm. was a, a book that has we can talk about this in a moment, but the title of the book that's available both on Kindle and, and as a paperback book is Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. And I think this was initially published as its own book in 1958. I'm not sure of that. But um, you know, what is the history of this book? The history of the book, uh, there's a lot of, uh, it has its own mythology, okay? And uh, not everybody's interested in the technicalities of things. I am. So technically, Jung did not write it as a book. It is an essay, an essay titled Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. And it was later extracted. And when I say extracted, it's because that essay is contained within volume 10 of Jung's collected works. The Collected Works of C.G. Jung is a 20-volume series, and volume 10 is uh, titled Civilization in Transition. Civilization in Transition, and that essay is, is contained within that. The book pulled from that volume as well as volume 18, which is really the last volume in the Collected Works that contains Jung's writings, because volume 19 is a bibliography and volume 20 is the index. Volume 18 is titled The Symbolic Life, and it's miscellaneous writings from all the other volumes. So that little book, Flying Saucers, it is the essay, is Jung's essay. And it is 
it's not, again, it's not easy reading. It's not cut and dried. Uh, Jung didn't write like that. He, he wrote in a style that I, I read somewhere and I don't have the quote in front of me that he wrote that way on purpose because he wanted to kind of weed out the riffraff. And he also, I had an analyst say, you need to learn to live with ambiguity. So there are no answers in this book. Jung looked at things psychologically. And from my long history in the UFO community, we don't tend to look at things psychologically to this extent. But what I did find interesting that Jung wrote in this essay, he became interested in UFOs in 1946. That's one year before the Roswell incident. Mm-hmm. Because I think we tend to, to think that the, the, the alleged crash at Roswell kind of kicked off the whole UFO movement and people's interest in UFOs. And maybe it did, but the fact that he became interested in UFOs before that, I thought was very interesting. Now, he also goes on to say he's never seen anything and that he had read at the time all of the available books on the subject. So uh, he, I mean, this essay, it's it's actually full of UFO dreams which is which is what I I loved that about the book. Did you? Okay. Uh, see, for me, I uh, I'm not that is one part of Jung's psychology that I'm not as interested in. I know that's blasphemy to a lot of unions, <laughs> but it's it's just not as interesting to me. There there are more interesting things to me. So there are it's also full of paintings. Uh, of UFOs. So to me, that's so subjective. It says uh, more about that individual's psychology than it does about the actual phenomena itself. Well, let's just talk about that because we can get into some of these dreams a little later in the interview, but these people were dreaming of UFOs Mm -hmm. before that had really saturated our popular consciousness in the sense that they were clean slates. They had no, they weren't, they were they had no knowledge mm-hmm. of the UFO phenomenon as they were having these dreams with what were flying saucers. So what I found fascinating was he was seeing the flying saucer not as a metal spaceship, though he didn't dismiss that, mm-hmm. but he saw it as a, as a, as a manifestation of something that was somehow deep within all of us. Well, let me go back to a phrase you used, a, a clean slate. Jung did not believe that we came in here to this existence as clean slates. That's one of the things that is uh, kind of separates Jung from other psychologists. And one of the things that sets Jung apart is that he believed the unconscious has a guiding function and that identity is inborn. Our essence is with us when we are brought into the world. Who you can be is there at birth and that we have a personal unconscious 
But we also have a, the collective unconscious within us, and that is where the archetypes are, the archetypal realm. So he didn't believe that we came in here as a blank slate. He believed that we we're born with this connection to the collective. So people dreaming about UFOs is maybe he saw that as being archetypal. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the impression I got from the book. And when I said clean slate, I meant the, the dreamer, the patient, right. hadn't been influenced by the you know newspapers and Hollywood movies at that early stage when he was collecting these dreams. Right. Um, oh, and there's also something that I, this, I stole this right from your show. You were interviewing a fellow who had edited the Black Book, the set of seven books. Um, I can't remember his name. Professor Sonu Shamdasani. Yes, he's also the editor and co-translator of Jung's Red Book. Okay. So he did the same with Jung's Black Books, which are the precursor to the Red Book. So everything that's in the Red Book came from Jung's Black Books. There, Jung actually wrote in these journals, these black leather bound blank journals, and there are six of them. And the reason why the black books are in a set of seven is because volume one is uh, Dr. Shamdasani's introduction to the black books and an index. And, and in the interview you did with him, he said something that I just loved. He said that Jung used the phrase, the mythopoetic layer of the psyche. And that term, that phrase, later turned into, you know, he, he came to use the term the collective unconscious. But I just love that, the mythopoetic layer of the psyche. Mm -hmm. So Jung was looking at these dreams, the dreams of the patient, mm -hmm. and he was analyzing them in symbolic terms. And what, what made it incredible for me was that his, like his depth of knowledge of mythology and folklore right. and and the Bible and, and just layer upon layer of like Faust and, and the, the practices of magicians and stuff like that. It was, you know, so it, as you said, it is very dense. So he was looking at a flying saucer dream and analyzing it symbolically. Where I have been in my own work, mm -hmm. in essence, looking at people's UFO sightings and analyzing them as if they were a dream. Because yeah. oftentimes the UFO sighting will also be imbued with symbolic elements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Jung certainly was looking at things psychologically. Uh, he was interested in the psychological meaning. And he believed that he believed in the reality of the psyche. So whether or not UFOs actually existed, wasn't really a concern of his because if it was real for the individual, let's just use that word instead of the patient. I don't, I don't like using that word. A, a lot of analysts disagree with me. If it was real for someone, then it was real because he, he, he took it seriously. That's one of the things about Jung that drew me to him is that he took all of this seriously because it, it's all, it's, it's saying something that's worth, that's worth hearing. Um, so in these dreams and in these paintings that he discusses in this essay, he asked the question, what is it from the unconscious that, that 
because it was being maybe denied or repressed or not fully appreciated, what is being projected onto the physical world and seen as strange or alien or frightening? Um, so this essay of Jung's Flying Saucers, I've attempted to talk about it on, uh, I filled in, I guest hosted a show back in 2019. I had a Jungian analyst come on to talk about it. it, it it's a struggle to discuss. Then I had him on my podcast. This is Kenneth James. He spoke about it well, but it's it's not what I'm finding is that this book of Jung's, it, this essay of Jung's is not what people want it to be because Jung sees UFOs as symbols of the self. The self is the center, uh, our center. Uh, also, um, it, it, I mean, it, it embraces both the conscious and the unconscious. It's the center. It's our totality. Just as the ego is the center of consciousness, the self is the center of, of the individual. So one of the criticisms that I get from people in this field is that, oh, Jung sees everything as a projection. Well, no, Jung doesn't see everything as a projection. We all project all of the time. That's, that's what we do. And he is not saying that UFOs are just a projection. He's looking at it and taking it seriously. And he believed that all of it was worthy of investigation, but he died in 1961. So he could only take it so far. Do you know what I mean? So when people go to this essay that was published in 1958, it's very incomplete. And he certainly didn't have all the information that we have today. Um, I, and I think this is not a great book for people to run to and say, oh, what did Jung say about UFOs? It's not. <laughs> it's not good. And, and I agree. And I agree. And that's one of the things I, 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 it was sort of a challenge to me to take two steps back and look at this complex subject with different eyes. And, and any time you can do that with any subject, I think that's valuable. And the, the sort of wisdom and depth of his examination, although dense, is, is riveting in, in many ways. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, what we need to do now is take our very first break. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with Laura London, and we are discussing among other things, Carl Jung's book on flying saucers. And just, you didn't hear it, but in the break, you talked about your sort of frustration with this yeah. book yeah. and how difficult it is to, to like use it as a source for UFO research. Right. And it's not, because it's not a book, it's an essay that he wrote in the 50s. And here we are in... 2021, we have so much more information on UFOs, on sightings, on contact. Jung didn't have any of that. So to go to this essay to see what he said, I just find people are disappointed. I'm going to be honest with you. And again, he's looking at this psychologically. He's looking at it symbolically. A lot of people aren't into that, even though people are interested in Jung. The reality of it and what 
what I like to talk about is the work we do in analysis, which is applying Jung to ourselves, living it, not just talking about it as some external concept or idea, but how does this affect my life? How do I use this to, to, to not, what do I want to say? How do I live this in, how do I apply Jung's concepts to myself? Because it's so much easier to see things in other people than it is to see it in ourselves. But absolutely, yeah. But that is the great work. And no, not everybody's interested in doing that. Not everybody's up to it, but I am. And, and my podcast exists to share that information with other people, to let them know that there are alternatives to pop psychology that doesn't really get beneath the surface. And Jungian analysts are very unique because both Jungian and Freudian analysts are required to undergo their own analysis of themselves. That is a requirement um, before they can practice as analysts and, and see analysands or patients, as some like to call them. Um, but that is not required of clinical psychologists or hypnotherapists or Jungian-oriented psychologists, social workers. None of them are required to undergo a personal analysis. But Jungian analysts are. And the reason for that is so that they know what is theirs and what is the other person's? What is their stuff and what is somebody else's stuff? And in when they're undergoing the training process, they're constantly learning and looking to withdraw projections, withdraw them, withdraw them, withdraw them. So I am actually more interested in that kind of work than I am about reading Jung and, and going through all of this very difficult uh, stuff here so oh oh yeah hey so for you here let me ask you a question yeah. when i initially contacted you uh -huh. and said would you like to talk about carl Jung's book on my podcast you said no i pressed you a little bit it didn't take much work and you said okay i'll do it and then so after i asked you after you agreed you saw a ufo while listening to an audio podcast with ryan bledsoe christopher bledsoe's son yeah I want to hear the story. You, you told me briefly in an email, but I would love to hear it now. So what happened was, and I don't think we mentioned this since we've been recording, you and I, but I've known who you were for many, many years because, as I mentioned, I've been listening to Whitley Strieber's Dreamland since the beginning. I mean, I listened to Dreamland when Art had it, and, and I used to listen to Whitley on Art Bell's show. And so I heard... Actually, I'm going to back up. I heard you interview Whitley first, right? So before you were ever on Dreamland, you had Whitley on The Hidden Experience. Is that true? No, no, I had been on Dreamland before that. I was actually okay. um, the very first guest on Ann Streber's Contact E series. Okay. I did not listen to that. Okay. You hear, I'm so nervous. I, I'm so nervous and I'm mumbling over all my words. Yeah, when I did the interview with, with Ann Streber, that was my very first publicly talking about that stuff to such a wide audience. And what year was that? I'm 
going to guess 2008. I'm guessing that I might be wrong. Oh, wow. That long ago. Okay, so... So 2009. It would have been 2009. 2009. Oh, and we have... You and I have a story to tell about 2009. Joshua yes. Tree? Right. Uh, yes, we can talk about 2009, but I want to hear about your UFO sighting in Chicago. My UFO sighting. Okay, well... I, I, I'm, I'm going to say now, I don't know that it was a UFO, but I have never seen anything like that before. So I am, Mike, you and I are around the same age. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I, and I've been in this field since the 1980s. I've never seen a UFO that I can remember. And no, I'm not interested in being regressed. Okay. I live in Chicago. I'm in my kitchen and I have the drapes open because I love seeing the sky, what, what you can see of the sky because of all the light pollution in Chicago. But I have a pretty good view of the east, the southeast, and the south from my condo. I live in a high-rise condo. And I was listening to Ryan Bledsoe's interview with Jimmy Church on Fade to Black. So he, he was on, I think the Monday night show, but on January 7th, I was in my kitchen. Um, and I'm a podcast junkie. I, I still use an iPod. So I download shows. I import them into iTunes. I plug my iPod into my Mac and I copy the, the shows onto the iPod and then I stick it in a Bose sound dock. And that's what I was using. And I was blown away by this interview because I didn't know much about the Bledsoe story. I mean, I, I had heard of it, but I didn't know the details. I'm listening to Ryan, and I'm just completely blown away by the stories he's telling. He seems so sincere. I'm totally on board. I look out my kitchen window, and I see something. And, you know, I see a lot of planes. I'm, you know, it's Chicago, right? And it's not moving, so I'm doing other things and every once in a while I glance over and I look again, it's still in the same spot. Now there are three lights on this object and I have dirty windows. I have screens on my windows, but I'm used to looking through dirty windows. Okay. Cause I look at Sirius and Orion all the time. That's what I look for. And I've been seeing Mars and the Jupiter Saturn conjunction. So this thing is not moving and I'm busy. I'm doing other things in the kitchen. I'm listening to Orion. And it's not moving and there's nothing blinking. So that's what I was taught uh, when you see something in the sky, if there's a, a consistent blinking light, then it's a plane. There's nothing blinking. So I think that this, some, something's, something's not right. So I take out my iPhone. I've got a pretty good iPhone. It's, it's the big one with the three cameras on the back. And I take a bunch of pictures. And so I have the photos. I still don't know what it was. But then you emailed me. Did you email me? No, you emailed me before that. We have another story to tell about you emailing me. Um, but you you emailed me right away. You Yeah, you did. You emailed me because I tweeted about it. So, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I sent you something very simple thing about like, you know, when we're going to record. And then you got back to me and said, I saw a UFO out my window. No, you saw it on Twitter. Oh, did I? Okay. Yeah, you saw me. Oh, that's right. Wrote, you're right. I, I did see it on Twitter. Yes, you're right. I, I went to Twitter because I used the hashtag Chicago because I wanted to know if anybody else was seeing what I was seeing. So I went to Twitter. I said, 
where, where I was, what neighborhood I was in, and that I was looking south. And I wanted to know, and nobody ever responded to that tweet. And usually I get replies when I'm wondering, you know, what's going on in Chicago. So nobody, I can't believe nobody else saw it, or maybe it was nothing, but I have the photos and I, I don't know what it was. That was a very strange, the whole evening was strange. And did you see it disappear? Oh, that's right. Thank you. I, I did see it disappear while I was observing it. It shot off to toward the west very fast. Now, it wasn't at the speed of a shooting star. It wasn't that kind of how you hear people explain they see UFOs move that fast. It wasn't that fast, but it went from standing still, if you will, to taking off extremely quickly. Wow. I still don't know what that was, but the fact that I was listening to Ryan Bledsoe and was completely blown away. I mean, I listened to a lot of shows. That was Fade to Black. I listened to Coast to Coast. I listened to Whitley Show. I listened to a lot of shows. But this one really impressed me. Uh, his sincerity, his story, what he was saying. Yeah. Okay, so let me unpack this a little bit. Now, I, so this was between me asking you to do the interview and today when we're doing the interview, it's about the halfway point between the two, and I have seen a UFO with Ryan Bledsoe in his backyard. What? So, so I've visited Chris a few times, Christopher Bledsoe. I did a wonderful interview with Chris, uh -huh. and that was last year. I think it was in April of last year. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, so I'm good friends with Chris. Chris is roughly my age. And I've, so I've, this was in 2013. So a lot of stuff has happened with Chris since then. Um, but I think it would have been around 2017. I was visiting Chris and we were in the backyard and Ryan was there and Chris was taking these flash photos and taking photos in the dark and getting orbs and stuff like that. He has this really calm way about him. He's kind of disarmingly calm. Mm -hmm. He's Southern. He talks very slow. Yeah. And Ryan and I were like, what is that little dot? What is, what do you have some on the roof? It looked like a, it looked like someone had an electric orange ping pong ball on the roof. And the way the tree was next to the house it's like, is that sitting on the roof? And we would get on one side and we could see it. Well, we can see it. And it looks like it's either on the roof or very close to the roof. Like it was 20 feet away from us, this glowing ping pong ball sized dot of translucent orange light. And we'd walk to the other side of the tree and you could barely make it out. It was kind of off the crest of the roof, but the tree was in the way. So there's only one spot to get a good look at it. And eventually it just was gone. We just looked back and it was gone. And we both went the next morning and looked at the house in full daylight, trying to figure out what it was. So, uh, it was unusual. Like, so I, it wasn't flying. It could have been setting on the roof or it could have been just a little bit above the roof, but we spent five minutes walking back and forth, staring at this thing. Like, what is that thing? And I have also seen, um, a, a craft in flight from Chris Letso's backyard that did not behave like an ordinary uh, craft. And it looked like this was in the summertime and it was sort of far away and it's the South and you can kind of gauge distance by the level of uh, the sort of the, the diffuse quality of the humidity in the air. And it felt like it was pretty far away, but it was not flying like a like a airplane. Mm -hmm. It was moving across the sky and zigzagging like, you know, those little water bugs that kind of glide across the surface of a pond that kind of zip, zip. 
and their little toes are just barely touching the water surface. It was moving in that erratic, bug-like way. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have a view of, of Lake Michigan from your... No, I actually can't see the lake from my apartment. But it would be east of you, right? Yeah, like you said. Yeah, the, the lake is to the east. Uh, I can't see the lake from my apartment because of the buildings in the way okay. uh, between me and the lake. But Oh, here, uh, let me just... So I know a woman named Laura who has seen UFOs from her Chicago apartment uh, looking to the east. Really? Yeah. This is going back years ago now. Okay. So I'll ask you, does this qualify as a synchronicity or like what I would call a cluster of synchronicities? Well, I was hoping that we would get into that and to have, I, I would like to explain Jung's concept of synchronicity because it is not what is out there in the popular culture. But let me just go back to make one more point about that evening of that sighting. I have been to New Mexico. I used to go every year, sometimes four or five times a year to Northern New Mexico. I even had a condo there for a while. I started visiting in 1996. We would go out at night into the desert looking for UFOs. Never saw a UFO. Okay. So why from my kitchen in downtown Chicago through a dirty window in this densely populated area, do I finally see what to me was a UFO? Why? Why now? Why on January 7th, 2021, while listening to Ryan Bledsoe's interview, I had no idea that you knew Chris and Ryan Bledsoe. And had seen UFOs with them. And had seen UFOs. And it wasn't until you emailed me and told me that you knew them. But I would love to back up to tell about what happened with your initial email asking me to be a guest on your show and the owl synchronicity that went along with that. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that completely. Yeah, please go. Yeah, I'm all for owl synchronicities because this is my my stuff of life. Yeah. So what happened was, and I think I started uh, mentioning this earlier, is I reached out to you back in 2015 when I was starting uh, to put Speaking of Jung together because I needed help with microphones. I had never owned a microphone before, and I knew that that was an essential and important part of of doing a podcast is I needed to sound good. And I loved the way you sounded because I listened to your hidden experience uh, audio. You have interviews on that blog, right? The hidden experience blog. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's about 200 hours of audio interviews archived on the site. Yeah. And I had, I guess I had just been listening to something there recently because I loved the way you sounded. And so I reached out to you and I sent you an email. Oh, I know because you said that, in one of those episodes that you had a very expensive mic and you had a relatively inexpensive headset and that the head, the inexpensive headset actually sounded better. So I of course wanted to know what that inexpensive headset was. So I reached out to you and you wrote me back and I was so grateful that you would, you didn't know me and you would take the time and you were gracious enough to, to help me and to answer my questions via email cut to, I had written to you in March of 2015. Then in, I have it here, it was on January 2nd. You send me an email out of nowhere. And 
January 2nd, 2021, it was a reply to my email that I sent you on March 3rd, 2015. And you said, hey, is this the same Laura London who does the Speaking of Young podcast? But here's what you didn't know. I was in my kitchen and I opened the refrigerator, again, back in the kitchen. I opened the refrigerator and there are some cans of IPA beer in there from a local Chicago brewery. And I open the refrigerator and I see this little owl face. Now, this is before your email. This little owl face, because of the the way that the can of beer, these tall pint cans was twisted. And I open the refrigerator and I see it. And it's a, a little owl logo. And I'm like, is that an owl? So I take it and I look at it and it says uh, half acre brewing company or something, Chicago, Illinois. And their logo is this tiny little owl face. Now I love owls. I, I mean, there, there isn't enough time, uh, to, for me to get into all the owls that I have and how, I love <laughs> owls. and how many owl that, well, there is another synchronicity, which is probably the biggest one of my life that I do hope we have time to tell that does involve Sonu Shamdasani and the black books. One of the biggest synchronicities of my life. So anyway, See this little owl logo, close the refrigerator, have to get something out of the kitchen pantry, open the pantry door. And I have photos of all of these things as proof. And in question, did you take the photos before I called, before I emailed you? Uh, I think I may have taken the photos to show you, oh my gosh, right? So close the refrigerator, go to the kitchen pantry, which is this big closet, I open the door and the first thing I see is a box. Uh, inside of the box is a candle. I only buy candles from Big Dipper Waxworks in Seattle because they make their candles out of 100% beeswax. And it was in the shape of a ball with a sculpted figure on it. And these are owls. It's their Christmas ornament candle with uh, sculpted owls on it. And it they come in these really cute square boxes with this illustration of an owl on it. So I open the pantry and this owl that's right where my eyes went and I see this box, this owl looking at me. I'm like, wow, close the, the pantry door, go back in the kitchen, go to the kitchen sink. And I always keep a candle burning in the kitchen, right in front of the kitchen sink on the counter there. And it is because I bought three of them. It is the owl candle and the owl face was glowing. Do you know what I mean? So it's like I'm seeing these owl faces, boom, 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 three in a row. In including a glowing owl face. The yeah. glowing owl face because the, the candle had burned down quite a bit. And, and so the wick was down inside it. And I have pictures of that. And then I go over to my iPhone and then... I look at my iPhone, there's a notification. You know how you can see the notifications without opening, without waking up the phone? Mm -hmm. And it's from you. And so I saw the three owls, the beer can, the candle box, the lit candle, and then there's this email from you. You, to me, are the owls, UFOs, and synchronicity guy. And... You're reaching out to me, what, six years later, out of nowhere. We've had no contact whatsoever 
since that email exchange in March of 2015. So yeah. And that was on the second. And then five days later, I'm listening to Ryan Bledsoe, your friend. I had no idea you guys were friends. Back in my kitchen, see UFO from my kitchen window. <laughs> and then I tweet about it with the hashtag Chicago. And you see my tweet. How did you see my tweet? I didn't even you know. That was right after the whole events of uh, Washington, D.C. and the yeah. siege on the Capitol and stuff like that. I was just scrolling through Twitter to see if there was any footage, which there was tons. Right. And I was just scrolling through Twitter, just looking at stuff. And I saw a single little thing from you pop up. And that's that's how I saw it. Yeah. And so what I just realized is my synchronicity with Professor Sonu Shamdasani, who we had mentioned earlier, is the editor and co-translator of both the Red Book and the Black Books. The Black Books were released in October of 2020. Involves owls, but they were just my owls. And again, I have photos. Uh, I posted them on Facebook and on Instagram. Oh, I think maybe even on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. So I haven't heard this story. What we can do right now, let's take our second and final break and we'll get right back into this. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen and I'm with my guest, Laura London, and we are talking about, among other things, synchronicity and Carl Jung. Uh, just before the break, you were about to tell a powerful story by the man who was editor of both the Red Book and the Black Book, Carl Jung's two great big giant works that were released posthumously. So you have a story about a powerful synchronicity that involved this man. Yes. So this is Professor Sonu Shamdasani, who, um, yeah, so Professor Sonu Shamdasani and I were exchanging emails because he agreed to be a guest on Speaking of Jung, which I actually never thought that day would come because he doesn't do a lot of interviews. Uh, and the Black Books were being released in October of last year. So I had written to him several times asking if he would do an episode with me to talk about them and to help promote them and, and tell the listeners about them, what they are. He agreed. So I was doing my research on the Black Books because the Philemon Foundation, who published them, put out uh, an introductory video, a short video about the Black Books. So we got to see how they were packaged. And they are in a slip case. So that is a box with no side in the front. Right. So the seven volumes slip in um, there. It's beautifully designed. There are seven hardcover volumes. And I, I commented in the email to him saying the design is because I love black and white. They're all black. They're cloth with gold lettering and they're gorgeous. So I commented on that. that that's how I am. I didn't know if it was appropriate or not. I said that this is stunning. They're you know, I, I listened to that audio interview and I am an art director and was an art director. I love when someone takes the care to do a beautiful job yes. with the printed word. Yes. And and the pages are glossy white. The font is, I don't know what font it is, but it's beautiful. And so I commented in the email. 
He wrote back and said what he envisioned was the monolith from Kubrick's 2001 when designing how they were going to be packaged. And I was stunned. I was stunned that, I mean, he is a professor of Jung history at University College London. He is the leading scholar in the world on Carl Jung. He is, he, he's just this brilliant man. And for him to make a reference like that, I, I mean, I smiled, I laughed, I, I loved it for, for him to mention that that's what he had in mind when he was designing the black books and how they'd be packaged. So well, what I like to do uh, when I'm about ready to, to do an episode is I promote it a lot on social media. And so I loved the look of the black book so much that I was posting photos of them on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And then I found some stills from the movie 2001 that included the monolith in that same position as the black books. And I was putting them together. Now I photographed my set because I got a set early from the publisher and I put them on a table. I, I wanted to make a beautiful photo and I put them on a white table and this white table I have in my office here has two hand carved owls. They are from New Mexico. Um, the late artist Duane O'Hagan, he passed away, I think in 2015, but he carved these owls. He called them spirit owls from cottonwood trees, these big, beautiful cottonwood trees that grow in northern New Mexico. And they are my spirit owls. And one is tall and white with some pastel blue. And the other one is short and squat and brown. And the reason why I bought them, I bought them in 2012 in Taos, New Mexico, because that morning I thought I saw an owl in the tree it wasn't an owl. It was a large black something that looked like an owl. And I, it was very early in the morning. And I thought, is, is that an owl? And I desperately wanted to see an owl because I haven't seen a lot of owls. Unlike you, I know you encounter them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I also live in a place with a lot of owls and have lived in places with a lot of owls, you know, so go keep going. Right. But I thought that, I mean, we were in a house out on the Mesa in Taos and I was out on the patio area. Um, and this isn't even part of the synchronicity, but, but well, it, I mean, it maybe even is one in itself. So it's a side story. It's a side synchronicity off the Shamdasani one. And I desperately wanted to see an owl, didn't see one, but I, I saw something in that tree that looked like an owl. Later that day, I was in town and I always go into this store, it's called Taos Blue, and I was in there and what did I see but these spirit owls carved from cottonwood trees. And it was a cottonwood tree that I thought I saw an owl in that morning. So of course I had to buy some, there were a bunch of them. And so I, I couldn't decide on one. So I picked out two and because it reminded me of what I saw that morning. And so, I mean, I'm looking at them right now, turning, turning my head and looking at them right now. So they're on the table with the black books. And so when I photographed the black books for promotion of the episode, I have the owls actually in a lot of the shots, but anyway, so here's where this another synchronicity comes in. 
So I'm promoting this episode, the black books, they look like the monolith. Here are some photos from 2001, a space odyssey. What happens about a month later, these monoliths start appearing. Oh, and so I had changed my, because I'm cheeky like this, I had changed my location in my Twitter bio. It used to say Chicago. Sometimes that changes. Um, but I had changed it to the monolith. So on Twitter, you know, you have your name and your little bio and then the location. And so I had changed it to the monolith. Well, several weeks later, that monolith in Utah was discovered. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I and I actually have some friends who went and saw it and they said it was, you know, you look down inside, it's made of plywood and just like aluminum from the hardware store. So, I don't, so. yeah. So, I mean, it, it wasn't. It was it was like an artistic stunt, which I'm all for. I don't know that we know really maybe who is responsible for it. I know that some people in an artist collective. So the point is that that monolith was discovered. It didn't just appear. I guess it had been there. So monoliths were all over the news and photos of monoliths and people talking about monoliths. And I'd open Twitter and monolith would be trending. And here... I had just done this interview with Sham Dasani about the black books and I didn't ask him about it in that episode. So, but that was stunning to me that we, we revived this 2001, a space odyssey image, put it out there. And then about a month later, everybody's talking about the monolith from 2001, a space odyssey. 2001 Space Odyssey, when you get right down to it, is a story of UFO contact right. between man and, and the alien, you know, comes across very much as a sort of space god or a space overlord. Yes. And it's told very much in symbolic terms. That yes. that movie, it's, you see very little. Everything is implied symbolically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that movie is almost plays out as dream language. Mm -hmm. and, and so many other little things happened to after you contacted me. For instance, this is just a, a little one. I re-listened to your interviews with Whitley Strieber on Dreamland, and this happened on January 10th. I, I put it in the notes. You were talking about the woman who ate the white feathers. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. I had such a strong reaction to you telling that story. I turned, I turned off my iPod. Wow. And I didn't know why. That evening... I was washing a blanket and some pillowcases. I, you know, ever so often I think, okay, I need to wash these things. They, they were on the sofa. Uh, this big, beautiful black and white blanket uh, with black and white crosses on them. And then I took the pillowcases off the, the down pillows and I put everything in the washer. That night when I went, I took them out of the washer to put them in the dryer. These white feathers fell I mean, you know, as you're, I'm pulling the blanket and the pillowcases out of the washer to put them in the dryer, white feathers, and I have them here in a Ziploc bag, fell to the ground, just sort of floated down to the ground. They didn't come out in the wash. But it was that earlier that day, I heard you talking about the woman who ate the white feathers. And then these feathers fall out of the pillowcases, even though they had, and they, but, but you didn't eat them. They had survived. No, I didn't eat them, but I saved them. Um, so just little things like that. So that story is um, Denise Lynn, who is a psychic and author, 
And she went to find her spirit name and purposely went into the forest uh, in her near her home in California and sat alone in the forest. And she closed her eyes and meditated. And she said as she closed her eyes that all the sound disappeared. And there was this eerie silence, which sounds like a UFO experience, that eerie silence. And when she opened her eyes, there was a great horned owl on a branch right in front of her eyes. So she went with full intention to find her spirit name. She she goes through a sort of ritual. She meditates. She locked eyes with the owls. She said she had a download, which is another kind of thing that plays into the UFO experience. The owl flies off. There are three little feathers, little white feathers left on this branch. And she hears a voice in her head that says, put the feathers in your medicine bag. And she thought to herself, well, I have a nice medicine bag, like a little Native American medicine bag, but it's at home on my dresser. And then she hears a voice in her head that says, you are your medicine bag. Put the feathers in your medicine bag. And she eats the three feathers. Yeah. Without hesitating, she just eats all three of them. And that, to me, is such a powerful sort of, uh, you know, so she went into the forest asking with a with an intention and performed a ritual, meditating and asking a question, and she got such a powerful response. It's just, to me, like reality playing out in symbolic ways. Yeah. You wanted to talk about some vocabulary words, synchronicity, and what that means in more of a, a Jungian sense than the pop culture sense. Yeah. Could I just mention a, briefly a few other synchronicities? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Do, do I have time? You have all the time in the world. So some of the other synchronicities around you and owls that have happened since you reached out to me is uh, I had made the connection recently that I was close to both of my grandmothers and uh, one of them was named Mary and the other one's named Christina. And it took me my whole life to make that connection that Mary and Christ, Mary and Christina, again, I was listening to you uh, being interviewed by Whitley Strieber and you were telling him about the names Christopher, Christina, Kristen, and I had just made that connection because you said that what what is it what is the root of those names Christ? And no one on earth, well, I should be careful what I say. And no one that I have come across has had more bizarre, powerful, symbolic owl experiences than Christopher Bledsoe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and my my grandmother's name is Christina, and my niece's name is Christina, and Whitley just wrote a book about Jesus, didn't he? Mm-hmm. So. Another thing is just, there's so many others, but I'll just mention, um, I did an episode with Russ Lockhart, who it's episode 16, Jungian analyst and clinical psychologist. I had forgotten until yesterday when I went back and looked at the episode to put it on YouTube. He told the story of how an owl saved his life. That's why he named his printing company Owl and Heron Press. I had used photos of exhibit that I saw at PhotoEye in Santa Fe of these beautiful owls taken by Brad Wilson 
and I had used a photo of one of those owls uh, in the blog post accompanying that episode. And then there's also, I had forgotten about the owl on Mr. Rogers neighborhood X, the owl Mm -hmm. totally forgotten about him. And I didn't, remember that his name was X. Well, when Elon Musk and Grimes had their baby boy and they named him X Ash A12 and they call him little X, I was so into the birth of this baby that I dedicated one of the episodes I did last summer to X and not even remembering the name of the owl on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I don't know if any of this is interesting. You know what? So so oftentimes synchronicities have the flavor of someone trying to explain a dream. And I recognize that where, like, if someone tells you their dream, it's powerful to them. You may not be able to tap into it. I'm in a place right now where I can totally tap into the, to the, the dreamer's emotions in the sense that, like, I recognize that if you're telling me these things, they're powerful for you. So... Mm-hmm. And then just one more, I did an episode with Cedrus Monte again last summer. And when I was editing the audio, I was removing as many extraneous sounds as I could. And there was what sounded like an owl. And I have the clip because I sent it to her. And I uh, I put my iPhone up to the speaker and recorded it a few times so that I could share it with her. And she wrote back and said that... Um, she said, you couldn't have known this, but moon owl was the name given to me by one of my teachers. And at the time, I also have photos of this. I was wearing two necklaces and I'm often, you can see in photos of me, I have, um, a crescent moon and an owl. And she told me that her name was moon owl when I was, I was wearing those necklaces. So it's just little things like that, that these things, sometimes they drive me crazy. And (laughs) so cut to, cut to what I wanted to talk about was Jung, how Jung is the one who coined the term synchronicity and how we struggled with that at the beginning of my podcast. Because when I first started the podcast, I wanted that to be the focus of the entire podcast what is synchronicity? And what happened right after I started the podcast is that I found out that somebody had just made a documentary film titled What is Synchronicity? So I dropped that. And because my intention was to ask each guest at the end, because they're Jungian analysts, what is synchronicity? So I totally abandoned that idea when I found out it kind of had already been done. But What I wanted to talk about was Jung's concept of synchronicity, his definition of synchronicity, and how it is being used differently today. And I've stopped fighting it because I tried to make this known, and I've done some episodes about it. I made a short video about it with Daryl Sharp, but I think it's just a losing battle. It's just the the definition has changed and it's being used more to denote more of two meaningfully connected events instead of what it technically is, which is when an inner image plays itself out in the outer world. That is technically what a synchronicity is. 
It's an inner and an outer coinciding, meaningfully connected, a causal. One did not cause the other, but technically it is the convergence of inner and outer events. Uh, it's when an event in the outside world coincides meaningfully with a psychological state of mind. Now, the way that we use it today is two external things. So for instance, with me seeing the owls in the kitchen, the beer, the candle, the candle box, and then seeing an email from you, that's not an inner and an outer. Those are two outers, mm-hmm. right? Because Jung said a synchronicity consists of two factors. And I'm reading this from Collected Works, Volume 8, which is where his essay on synchronicity is published. You can also purchase it as just that essay individually, but it is in volume eight. He says synchronicity consists of two factors. One, an unconscious image comes into consciousness either directly, literally, or indirectly symbolized or suggested in the form of a dream, an idea, or a premonition. And two, an objective situation coincides with this content. So that is very different from the synchronicities that I've been telling you about. So the famous one that Jung talks about is when he had a patient in his consulting room. She was blocked. She talked about having a dream about a beetle. They hear something tapping at the window. It's a beetle. And he says, there's your beetle. The golden scarab. Yes. Yes. So, um... So Jung did coin the term, and the first reference he made to it was in 1928 in his um, his seminars sometimes got transcribed and then published, and they were published in um, Dream Analysis, I believe. And that same year, his interest in Eastern thought intensified when he received a copy of The Secret of the Golden Flower, from Richard Wilhelm, um, his friend and his colleague. He was the translator of the I Ching. So I've gotten into it pretty in depth with the analyst I interviewed in the second episode of Speaking of Jung, J. Gary Sparks, because he wrote a book called At the Heart of Matter, Synchronicity and Jung's Spiritual Testament. And it's about the parallels between Jung's psychology, which is technically called analytical psychology, and quantum physics, because Jung was friends with Wolfgang Pauli. And Gary Sparks in this book, it's just uncanny, the parallels between analytical psychology and quantum mechanics. So there's so much to talk about with that. But basically, what uh, Sparks is saying is that our understanding of reality is inadequate. And we have to expand our understanding of the relationship between the inner world and the outer world. And that's where the psychoid archetype comes into play. And I would also say that's where the value of Jung's Flying Saucer book comes in, where he is exploring this very challenging subject using symbology and mythology and archetypes as a way to try to explore um explore it 
psychologically, which I think is valuable. Uh, yes, it's a difficult book, but I think that it's valuable, if nothing else, that it forces the, let's say, the researcher or someone who's interested in the subject to take those three steps back and look at this subject through a completely different lens. Mm -hmm. So Jung was, in the words of Joseph Cambray, another Jungian analyst, he says Jung was a monist, now I can't pronounce that word, a monist, a monist, he didn't think mind and matter were fundamentally two separate things. So that's where this psychoid archetype comes into play. It's an expanded view of the archetype. And we didn't talk much about archetypes yet. Um, but I would just like to say that that word, it's kind of a trigger word in the Jungian field because like synchronicity, it's being used differently than I think Jung intended. And he was not clearly, he was not the first person to use the word archetype, but he was probably the first psychologist to really delve into it. And there is a branch of Jung psychology, of analytical psychology called archetypal psychology, and it was made popular by James Hillman. I am not of that camp. I, um, I don't understand that it works that way. But for instance, so there is a difference between, and we can't get confused between an archetype and an archetypal image. They're different. So an archetype is something that can't really be, um, when, when we say that, well, actually I've had people write to me on Twitter and, and say that, um, this has happened a few times that they took some quiz that's out there about what archetype you are and they were confused by it. And, <laughs> and, and I, and I, I, I was talking to my analyst on the phone and, and she said that, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. We aren't an archetype. We all have within us all of the archetypes. Um, some of us have maybe more, uh, dominant archetypal patterns, but it's dangerous to identify with an archetype. The archetypes are the, the that's the realm of the gods and we're not gods. But um, when you say that, for instance, I don't see the owl as an archetype because it would be actually more accurate to say the symbolism of the owl, that would communicate that that there is symbolism that's that's become associated with the owl without implying that the owl itself is actually an archetype because myths and you know fairy tales and religions and you know alchemy and the tarot and astrology they're all metaphors for this is how the the Jungian analysts see it they're metaphors for the psycho-spiritual patterns that are universal, you know, they, they're across all of human experience. So again, we, that we are, we're blurring that line between the archetype and the archetypal image. And 
Oh, what happened? No, I just bumped the microphone. Sorry. Oh, that synchronicity. Oh, excuse me, is about how psyche and matter are two different aspects of one and the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here, so I just want to read something here. Uh huh. Sure. Uh, in the throes of the first book, like I kind of lost myself. Like I went crazy when I wrote that first big fat book. Like I totally like immersed myself in it and mm -hmm. got so obsessed. And I lost myself in that book. You can read; it's right there. You can just tell that I feel that I'm lost. There, you don't have to read between the lines. But so I contacted this woman. Her name is Jacqueline Smith. She's had UFO contact experiences. She's an animal communicator. And she's also a UFO experiencer. She's had direct contact and she's very open about it. She is a wonderful, warm hearted woman. And uh, she she channeled the spirit of an owl in one of her books where it was all animal. I can't remember the name of the book right now, but spirit animal wisdom. She channeled the this owl conversation and I thought it was really interesting and so I wanted to contact her and talk with her directly so during the conversation we're going back and forth I'm so glad I recorded this conversation I kind of said kind of half jokingly like like Jacqueline like if you see that owl again you ask it you ask it for me what is up with all the owls and she started talking and then all of a sudden she starts talking really kind of haltingly and kind of stilted and she later told me she was channeling She's a channel too. Okay. So she late, you know, at the end of this thing, I said, were you channeling? And she said, yes. Here's what she said. They are using the owl symbolically, but the owl is still the owl frequency to mirror to us in an archetypal sense, because humans think of owls in a certain way, right? There is an archetypal image that is mirrored to humans. This goes on at a subconscious level and connects with the human's genetic memory bank. Because humans think with symbols, they are touching us on that level. And that goes back to the beginning of humankind and how we see owls. That's great. I love it. Yes. Yeah. I, I, so what happened in that moment, she said that I was like, I had, I had the messiest jigsaw puzzle on the table. I couldn't connect all the pieces. Like what is the unifying factor of the owl in this ufo lore when she said the owl is an archetype it just felt like that whole jigsaw puzzle just went whoosh and put itself together for me it just went click and it was it was one of the defining moments listening to her say that yeah so you were sort of arguing i had this up on my screen you were arguing that there's a there's a there's a jungian definition of an archetype and as you were saying that, I was just kind of checking off each of these little things in what Jacqueline Smith channeled yeah. from her guides. Yeah. I thought it was beautiful. And that's my go-to definition of what an archetype is. Yeah. There's something else I'd like to mention. Um, the title of your book, The Messenger, that is something that fits into this to me. Uh, I'd like to hear why you titled it that but the greek hermes hermes was the messenger mm -hmm. and when he got to rome he became mercury and mercury was taken up by alchemy and became mercurius and that figure is dual good and bad helpful and harmful matter and spirit beginning and end and it symbolizes a dimension of the unconscious he is that movement between matter and spirit. 
matter and spirit don't operate separately. They are unity and you see their unity in synchronicity. And what Gary Sparks was saying is who was talking about Jung and Pauli, that's what science can't come to grips with a unitary aspect of existence. And that he believes that that's what synchronicity is. And it is symbolized by Hermes, the messenger. The title of your book is The Messenger, right? The Messengers, plural. Yeah. The Messengers. Yes, your first book. So that fit in for me. And what I thought of, and I wanted to interrupt a little bit, I, you know, when you were talking about the, the cottonwood owls, yeah. you said one is lighter, one is darker. Yes. Side by side. I was like, yeah. I wanted to say, oh, that's that's the, that's like, like, it feels like my my understanding of the archetype is evolving. Within the last week, I kind of had an epiphany of sorts where I recognized that like a true archetype has that duality. It has the light and dark. Right. And I was putting in the owl mythology has both sides of it. It's wisdom and a symbol of death. Mm. It has a light and a dark side, just like those two symbolic owls that were flanking the black book. Yes. Yes. The reason it's called the messengers is because I, early on, I said, I want to hear your owl stories. I put it right on my, my website. I, uh, anytime I talk to people, I would just ask them. I would just like, I'm, I still do it. I, I do. Have you had any odd owl experiences? And people started sending me the letters, which I have got by the, like I have, as far as like A plus letters, like of really, I mean, I get a lot of owl stories that are kind of, you know, a little bit lower tier and I'm happy to get them. People are, but there's like A plus letters of the A plus quality ones. I've probably got a thousand. Wow. So really, or more. Um, but what was happening and it was happening organically. I didn't do it. People would say, oh, you know, I was at my home. My uh, uh, father had just died and an owl landed in the tree and then they would tell the story and then they stopped calling it an owl and they would simply say, and the messenger from the tree, you know, gave me this intuitive knowing, or I, I recognized that, that this was a messenger. It just, they, it just shifted gears. They just stopped saying owl mm -hmm. and began saying the messenger. Mm -hmm. And my initial title of the book was, uh, messengers of the night. And a friend of mine said, oh, just call it the messengers. Yeah. When I started speaking of Jung, and I, I actually even made a silly graphic about it. Uh, it's a photo of myself wearing these shades and neon pink lipstick. And I wrote on there because I wrote on there, I'm just a messenger. And obviously, that's a take from Cypher in the Matrix. But I say I'm just a messenger because a lot of people, and, and I've been introduced as a Jungian analyst. I'm not a Jungian analyst. I'm not a clinician. Uh, I'm bringing them to the public. So I consider myself a messenger. Uh, so it uh, reminded me of that when I saw your book title. Let's, I want to tell one last story before we close out here. And you can, I'll let you have the last word, but I just want to share something and get your, what, what insights you may have. Okay. So I went through a hypnosis session back in uh, 2018. A lot of interesting stuff came up. I feel like hypnosis is a sticky subject and I'm cautious to read too much into it. Yeah. So I'm treating it as a level of a story. Like I was presented with a story in like that I'm seeing in symbolic terms. I won't go into the core of it. I've talked about it in other shows. But at the end, uh, something came up. So it was with Yvonne Smith in California. And before 
you know, the session, we talked for a little bit and I said, Yvonne, please, at some point when I'm in this susceptible state, I want you to ask me what's up with all the owls. And she said, great, no problem. So just throw it in there somewhere in the middle of this, of this hypnosis session. So at the end, things are kind of winding down and she says, and Mike, what is your connection to the owls? And I stammered for a little bit. I kind of went, uh, 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 which is very normal. Hypnosis is funny. It's really easy to transcribe because you talk very slowly. Mm-hmm. So, I, so, so I'm kind of mumbling and I say something to the effect of, I, I'm an artist and I know what a symbol means and I, or, or how we need symbols. And, then I'm, and it's really chattery and mumbly. And then I speak very clearly and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cautiously say, this came out of the blue. I didn't. I don't know where this statement came from, and I'm going to do it from heart because I know it so well. Um, but I spoke suddenly, very clearly, and I'm like the owl guy. Like everything is owls, owls, owls. I've devoted my life to owls, and my my all my human energy has gone into owls for a decade. Right. So she says, "What is your connection to the owls?" And I mumble for a little bit, and then I say, "The owls aren't important." The owl is a symbol on a door. It is the door that is important. The owl is the correct symbol for the door. We are on this side of the door. And on the other side of the door is an infinite vastness. And that just came out of you. You didn't. You had no idea where that came from. I never would have said that. I would have said, like, owls are the most important thing ever. And right. that's what I'm devoting my life to. Right. But owls are a door. And it's interesting that Jesus Christ was referred to as the door. Yeah. Jesus Christ again. And in the hypnosis session, when I said the owl is a symbol on a door, I had a visual image of being in kind of a claustrophobic hallway and... It was like a hallway in a hotel or something like that with all these doors lined up. And I was in front of one door. And I, when I said the infinite vastness part, the door kind of swung open. And it was like a cheesy special effect from uh, like Doctor Who or something like that. Kind of a low-grade special effect of like swirling nebulas and this kind of infinite vastness of the galaxy. This was in the hypnosis session? That that was the visual I got in my mind. Oh. As I was speaking the word and on the other side of the door is an infinite vastness. Oh, wow. Yeah. So here, we can wind it up. And I just didn't, I feel like I sort of stole the floor there for a little bit. Uh, I think that sometimes we, I know that I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes I get lost in the literal interpretation of something so that it's not about the literal owl, but what the owl symbolizes. So the owls that I saw in the kitchen that night that I got your, your email, do the owls matter or is it about what is this leading you toward? You know, so that's what an analyst would say about synchronicity is move it forward. What is this leading you toward? And that's what I would say about the UFO. You know, the UFO doesn't matter. What is it leading you toward? Yeah. That's a great point. Yep. And I've done I've been doing that a lot where where um where I just switch owl and UFO. Oh, okay. In in my kind of thought experiment 
and how often it so cleanly this the 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 archetype of one matches the archetype of the other in a way or the symbology of one matches the symbology of the other mm-hmm. this has been great this has been a ton of fun uh for the listeners, we got hit and slammed with a bunch of technical things and phones ringing and trucks and stuff like that. So, But I am very convinced that I will be able to boil this down into a wonderful, engaging conversation that, that should be wonderful for the listeners. Thank you, Mike. You're very welcome. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. Now, what you just heard, uh, it seemed like we we ended the show pretty quick. Um, we actually talked a lot on and off during the show, little asides, and um, and those rambled on and on. So we so there was a lot of editing in the show to clean it up to make it a formal sounding interview. Uh, a lot of the stuff we were talking about had nothing to do with the format of the show. It had to do like about internal podcasting things and and there were some technical issues. So I apologize if it sounds like we had just abruptly ended the show. That's not how it really was. And And now I would like to read a quote from Carl Jung's book. I would like to read an excerpt from Carl Jung's book. Here goes. From the very beginning... The UFO reports interested me as being very possible symbolic rumors. UFOs seem to me to have a good deal in common with mandala symbolism. The plurality of UFOs, then, is a projection of a number of psychic images of wholeness which appear in the sky because, on the one hand, they represent archetypes changed with energy, and, on the other hand, are not recognized as psychic factors. The projected image then appears as an ostensibly physical fact, independent from the individual psyche and its nature. In other words, the rounded wholeness of the mandala becomes a spaceship controlled by an intelligent being. This from Carl Jung's 1958 book, Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the sky. Laura's website is speakingofjung.com and Jung is spelled J-U-N-G. That's speakingofjung.com and that will be linked in the show notes. She is also active on Twitter and Facebook. Now, I know there are a lot of listeners who recognize that I have had an absence for almost three months, and I felt I needed to step away from the microphone because I I simply was overloaded. I had a work project that I desperately needed to finish, and what I found was happening was that it was very difficult for me to divide my time between the podcast series and my workload, and consequently, both were suffering. I could not give them the attention they needed. Uh, I'm very close to being completed with the job that I had been working on. It's essentially done, and it has given me the chance to come back to the microphone. What I plan on doing from this point on is to do one podcast a month. I found that 
I was poorly suited to doing one podcast a week. I take this podcast very seriously, and I take these interviews very seriously. So the time it took for me to read the books, prep the interviews, record the interviews, edit the interviews, and then post them online, I just found that that wasn't a good balance for my other work. I dearly love the chance to talk to people in this field, and I enjoy the process of creating the podcast. It simply ended up to be very difficult for me to to manage doing both my work and the show. I have to say that Whitley has been very gracious and understanding uh, given the challenges I was confronting. Also, there was this... And I have to add to this that the political issues, specifically the national tensions that surrounded the election and uh, a little over a week ago, the assault on the White House, left me, left me very shaken and it, it brought me down. So through much of this time that I was absent, my mood was, was pretty down. It was hard for me to get motivated. I also want to say, like, I know what's involved in putting a podcast together, and I know what's involved in doing an interview, and I am continually impressed by Whitley and the remarkably high level of his output. The quality of his interviews is amazing, and that he does it week after week leaves me humbled. I wish I could keep up with him. I unfortunately cannot So for the foreseeable future, I will be doing one show a month. I wish I could do more. I simply cannot. I would also like to thank the people who reached out to me and asked me why I was absent. I could tell there was concern in their their letters. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.